You take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I ask that you'll begin reading with me in verse 9. We will read through verse 11. Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's as far as we'll go this morning. Um, I'm a bit apprehensive about this morning's message, but probably not for the reasons that you might think having read those verses. Of course, uh, whenever we speak of sin in the Bible, it can be quite controversial. It shouldn't be among the body of Christ, but it can be out in the world. But that's not really a source of apprehension for me. It is what it is. I didn't write it. Um, no, my apprehension in teaching these verses uh, is because I, I have landed on a place that I think is important for everybody to land on. And I'm not sure that I got what it takes this morning to kind of get us there. And uh, if you've ever been a teacher of any kind, really, it doesn't certainly have to just be the, the Bible, and you have some sense of the destination and uh, and you're not exactly sure if you're going to be able to land the plane where it's supposed to be headed, uh, it can be a, a bit appre- apprehensive. Um, I think that one way to approach a passage like this is to look at the uh, sins that are mentioned here one by one and to go into a pretty detailed explanation of them. It's interesting enough that Paul doesn't do that in the text, and I've done that before, and I'll just say, I don't really think it's necessary. I mean, to be honest, uh, the sins are not vague. Uh, they're pretty clear. Uh, you, you read them, and you know what they are. Um, what is fornication? It's sexual misconduct. It's, uh, it's uh, sexual immorality. What is idolatry? It's, it's the worship of other gods. What is adultery? It's sex outside of marriage, and homosexuality and sodomy, those, those are meant to represent both sides of homosexual behavior. Um, what's a thief? I mean, what's a, a person who's covetous and desires what they don't have? I think these things are pretty standard. I think we know what these are. The point of the text laid out like this is uh, not necessarily in pausing and reflecting on each one of these individually, though there would be value in that, The point of the text is what Paul is saying to acknowledge about these things. And that really comes to us in verse 9 where it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's a legitimate uh, question. And his reply, his answer to that is, Do not be deceived. Now as I read through this, I can think of two possible deceptions. There might be more. 
I can think of two. One would be to believe that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. You could be deceived, and in fact many are. You could be tricked, you could be misled into thinking that unrighteous people will somehow, some way, perhaps through purgatory, perhaps through good things that they've done to counterbalance bad things that they do, you could be deceived into thinking that some way unrighteous people are going to find a way in to the kingdom of God. And to this first deception, he simply says, do not be deceived about that. More on that in a second. There is a second deception, though, that I could envision someone falling prey to in a text like this. And that is that there is no unrighteous and that there is no kingdom of God. In other words, what we call unrighteousness is just a bunch of made-up rules and regulations. And what we call the kingdom of God is fairy tale, fantasy. To both of these possible deceptions, I believe that Paul is clearly saying, do not be deceived. Now, in the listing of all of the sin that comes in the second part of verse 9 and verse 10, I think that Paul means to do two things. One, speak very specifically to some sin that is prevalent and that ongoing deceptions are engaged in, and to some sins that are perhaps more subtle and not taken as seriously as they might. It's clearly not a comprehensive list of all sin. But he chooses these, he selects these for a reason. You will note that four of the initial five are sexual misconduct. Which I take to mean... Just like in our modern day, Paul must have been facing a headwind of people trying to teach others that certain sexual misconducts were not in fact evil and would not in fact keep them out of the kingdom of God if they carried on in them. Now that's a headwind that should be familiar to us. If you stand in the world at large and you say, sexual immorality is sin and people engaged in the active practice of unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God, you will face a headwind. If people pay attention to you, you will face a headwind. Yeah, if no one is paying attention, then you have other problems. doesn't really matter if you're speaking at all, I guess, to some degree. But if people hear you and are paying attention, you will face a headwind. Why? Because there are active, we'll call them vaguely, forces at work in the world today deceiving people into believing that what has been biblically and traditionally in our Judeo-Christian culture been understood as sexual immorality is not in fact immoral, that it is in fact acceptable to God, and that it will not keep someone out of the fairy tale of heaven. 
And I use that word fairy tale of heaven for a reason that I think will become clear. That is, if you reject what the Bible says, the point that I hope to make over this week and some into next week, if you reject what the Bible says, you are relegating all of it to mere fairy tale. More on that to come, I hope, if I can land that plane. May not be able to land that plane. Limitations being what they are. My own limitations being what they are. So he lists four out of five of the initial ones. Sexual misconduct. Because I, I, it seems logical to me he was facing in his culture the same headwinds that we face. He speaks of idolatry, which is a sin that the people in Corinth had come out of. And it was tied, you notice idolatry is mentioned in the midst of these other sexual sins. It was tied to the sexual misconduct. Because in the worship of these idols uh, in the Greek and Roman world, you were compelled to engage in sexual immorality. Worshiping these gods required sexual misconduct. And so idolatry belongs Verse 10, thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. We have to admit sort of a potpourri of unrighteousness there. Uh, Some perhaps tied to others, covetousness, thievery, drunkenness, revilers, extortioners. We could add a myriad of other categories and certainly We should, if we were trying to be comprehensive. But again, not his purpose here to be comprehensive. What is his purpose? To make sure that you know that those who openly practice unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, by way of fighting against the first possible deception this morning, that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Let's acknowledge very plainly here what Paul is telling us is the case. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Lest we think in perhaps our ignorance of the Bible at large that this is an isolated expression, I will read to you several others. From Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, they are obvious, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. It's a more comprehensive list than what we find in 1 Corinthians 6, but in and of itself, even that is not comprehensive, for which we have the phrase at the end, and the like, things like these. Immorality, of which, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I tell you you beforehand, just as I told you in past times, Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 5.21 Again, Ephesians 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, 
Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. That's appropriate. Thankfulness is appropriate. Not horsing around and joking about things you shouldn't joke about. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous person, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. That's Ephesians 5. Romans 1. Beginning in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God, not the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. It's not meant to condemn the righteous. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So, the Bible is clear and repetitive and consistent. Not an ounce of inconsistency in it. Sinners who are unrepentant practitioners who make no effort at repentance who make no admission of wrongdoing who continue on in unrepentant sin as if God did not care, not an I'm sorry to be said, 
not an ounce of humility to acknowledge, but continue on proud of their actions. And as Romans 1 said, giving hearty approval to others who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the wrath of God is coming upon them. Do not be deceived. In several of those passages, you get an appeal like the one we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, where Paul says, and such were some of you. This is not a bold proclamation against sin from a self-righteous man. When I use the term self-righteous, what I'm saying is, this is not the condemnation of sin from a person who thinks he has accomplished righteous behavior in his life. That's not what this is. Now, there is a call to sanctification and a call to righteous living. But righteous living in the Christian's life is not the accomplishment of the Christian. It is not self-righteousness. It is the accomplishment of God. Listen to this in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You didn't wash yourself. You didn't clean yourself up. You were washed. But you were sanctified. You didn't improve your own life. Sanctification is when one becomes closer and closer conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Their life sees tangible improvement in the struggle against sin. You didn't do that. You were sanctified. The improvement has been acted upon you. You were justified. You were made righteous before God. You did not self-will it or self-accomplish it. How did this happen? In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Things accomplished by God in the name of Christ. What we have here then is actually a really powerful argument against the danger of the second deception. I told you the first deception that I can see in the text is someone believing that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. But the second deception being someone to say, there is no unrighteous, there is no kingdom of God. Why do we believe certain behaviors are immoral to begin with? Why do we believe certain things are right or wrong to begin with? Pilate standing before Jesus with his kind of rhetorical question that he throws at the Lord on the day of his crucifixion, what is truth? He asked Jesus. 
Why do we believe something is right? Why do we believe something is wrong? In other words, the question I'm really asking is, where does the authority come from for me to stand up here in a pulpit in front of a group and say, these things are evil? These things are sin. Where does that come from? It comes from the story that I believe about the world. That's where it comes from. I believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe God, by way of his creation, is sovereign over the heavens and the earth. Because he is sovereign, he is king, he is in charge, I believe he and he alone possesses the moral authority to say what is right and wrong to be exercised in his sovereignty. I believe that sin is sin because God has declared it to be unrighteous and that righteousness is righteousness because God has declared it to be good. And I say those things because I believe God will ultimately judge both righteousness and unrighteousness. If he weren't going to judge righteousness or unrighteousness, then the story of what he said is morally right or morally wrong would never actually touch the objective reality of my life. It's a bit like you telling your son or your daughter, hey, don't do this, this is wrong. Okay, mom, dad. But then if they sneak off to their room and do it anyway, and no one ever finds out about it, and no punishment is ever rendered, no judgment ever comes, the story, the the way they see morality in their life as told to them by their parents never meets objectivity. It never meets reality. God must judge or else whatever he said about good or evil, it doesn't really matter. It's got no teeth. It doesn't make a difference. The story of who he is that proclaims his authority and that gives us moral instruction for our life never meets the objective reality of our lives apart from God's judgment. You just have a narrative and then what we know and experience in the world. And if those two things don't come together, there's no power in the Christian faith. And it doesn't accomplish anything. I want to read to you a quote. Actually, in the Sunday school class this morning, I shared the video. You can look up the video if you want. But I'll just, I want to read to you a quote. Um, some of you may have heard of uh, a psychologist named Jordan Peterson. Now, I followed Jordan Peterson kind of loosely for the last few years. He's an interesting character. As I said, he's a psychologist. He's Canadian. Don't hold it against him. You can hold other things against him, not the fact that he's Canadian. Maybe the fact that he's a psychologist you could hold against him, but not a Canadian. And I'm going to talk myself into a hole here pretty quick. Uh, he, he, the first videos he ever put on the internet on YouTube were Bible studies. He's not a Christian. Not in any orthodox sense of the word. But he was putting Bible studies uh, on the internet. And he, he is a practicing psychologist who tried to help counsel people with some 
extremely difficult and abusive and awful things that were happening in their lives. And he was finding truth in the Bible and he wanted other people to embrace the Bible even though he didn't really believe it to be historically true or accurate. So he was putting his Bible studies. He didn't get a lot of views because he wasn't a very popular person as those things tend to work out. But then there was a law that came up in Canada, a very famous law, where they began to compel people to use pronouns representative of a person's gender identity. And if you didn't use the pronouns, it was an actual violation of the law. And you could be both penalized in terms of fines, but also you know, criminally as well. And he stood up in his university and he said, I'm not going to do this, not because I'm insensitive. As I said, he wasn't a Christian. He was actually willing to use individual pronouns and personal conversation. But he had a real problem with being compelled to stand up and do this thing. He thought it was a violation of free speech. So he said he wasn't going to do it, and he became very famous. Well, when he became very famous, uh, then his Bible studies began to get a lot of views because, you know, famous people get stuff seen. And he carried on for a long time, and I was kind of aware of him because I respected the integrity of standing up and saying things that were objectively true, uh, biological facts about gender, but also just real observations about the influence of the Christian faith, the positive influence of it in the world, even though he himself wasn't a Christian. But I also kind of hold people like that at a distance because there's a certain, there's a certain crossover point where if you listen to too much of them and embrace too much of it, you give room for um, wrong ideas to creep in because they're not Christians. And so you have to be, I have to, I guard my heart. I try to be careful with it. Anyway, he fell off my radar. And then he resurfaced a couple weeks ago. And he was doing a, he was doing a, a, a video on the internet and the subject of Jesus came up. And I want to read to you what he said. Because I, I find this incredibly powerful. And I hope it's a launching point into where we're going to turn in a second in the Bible, but also into the next two weeks as we prepare for Easter Sunday. This is what he said. He said, sometimes the objective world and the narrative world, what we observe objectively and the narrative world, that's the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what's right and wrong. Sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch. And I've seen that in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, it's been the world of morality, right and wrong. The world that tells us how to act. It's real, like we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate, the ultimate example of that in principle is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to make and at that point, he stops and he stutters and he starts to cry. And it's a shocking thing because he's not a person that is crying and emotional and blubbering a lot. He says, I don't know what to make. Stop. That seems to me oddly plausible, but I still don't know what to make of it. In part, and he's crying now, because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. 
I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. That's Jordan Peterson. And that is a man right on the edge of salvation, but not, not home. Not home. What is he saying there? He is saying, sometimes what we observe and what we experience, my wife who I, who I touch or who I kiss, my children who hug me, sometimes what we observe objectively in the world and the narrative world, which is the story that I tell myself about who I am, about why the world is the way that it is, about my purpose in the world and how I should live. For him, morality, how I should conduct myself. Sometimes those two things touch. Now for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit of God, those two things should touch all the time. And I think that that is what's so terrifying for Jordan Peterson. But we see no disconnect between the objective world and the story behind it. But he's saying sometimes, even for non-Christian people, there are experiences where they touch these two worlds in undeniable ways. For many people, it's when they hold their child for the first time. Objectively, this is just a baby. Objectively, this baby has no connection to you. You have no memories with it. You have no history with it. Unless you're the mother who's carried it, you have no history, memory with it. It's not tied to you at all except for some biological DNA material. That's the objective world. And yet, the testimony of most people is that when they hold their child for the first time, there is a connection there that they experience that goes far beyond what can be objectively felt. That was my experience. And there are moments like that in life, sometimes on the other side of that too, where the pain you feel about something that has happened to you or perhaps something that you have done to someone else. The pain you experience from that and the sense of gravity about what it is that has happened does not match what can be observed in the objective world. And when the severity of those moments hit, you're left with a sense of something significant has happened and yet I can't describe it in terms of flesh and blood. The first time, you know, you lie to your spouse. Something serious has happened. But it may have been rather innocuous. May have been rather inconsequential, whatever the lie was about. And yet, perhaps you felt, I'm keeping something from my husband or my wife. And there's a gravity to it. This is what I mean by the narrative and the objective. And in Christ, what he's saying here is, this is the one and only perfect example in the recorded history of the human race where the story becomes the objective reality. 
That's from a lost person. Now, you can turn there if you like or you can just listen, but I want you to, with that viewpoint, turn to John chapter one because I want you to understand how crucial this perspective is. This is not a sermon on Jordan Peterson. This is a sermon on John 1. This is why the sin of 1 Corinthians 6 matters. It's the only reason why it matters. Listen to John try to make this connection. Try to tell his readers that in the person of Christ, the story of what they know about the world and God and morality touches the objective flesh and blood world that can be observed and handled and felt. In the beginning was the Word. What an amazing way to describe a person as a Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Ergo, the story matters. You cannot separate the story from God Himself. People have described this in many ways. They describe God as the author of the story. That's fine, but this is John's way of doing it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And we get the sudden sense. It's not just a story. But the story is personified in an individual. And it always has been. We might go so far as to say the story is entirely about an individual. The story and the individual are inseparable. And they are God. And they are eternal. They were in the beginning. All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. In all other men, and this can be tangibly, objectively observed, in all other men, you will only observe death. Looking at you right now, and I observe death. Looking at me, it does not take astute observations to see the onset of death. I am breaking down. I am falling apart. I bleed. I hurt. I ache. What you see in me is not light. It's not hope. It's not life. It is life being extinguished. But in him was life. And the life that was in him was the light of men the hope of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness 
in the hopeless unrighteousness of this death-filled world that we live in, and the darkness did not understand it. The darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Can you feel the inclusiveness of this? This is not exclusivity. This is inclusive. That is both refreshing and terrifying. But he, John, was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. You feel the inclusiveness? He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Children inherit. Children inherit. If we went back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to how much of his case here in these, what, three verses about sin. Listen to how much of his point making ties to this story as opposed to any sort of objective practicality in front of someone's face. Listen to his argument not to sin. Are you ready? Do you not know that the unrighteous, that's a narrative word, that's a story word. You only know what unrighteousness is because it has been told to you in the story of God and his creation. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a story That's a narrative. That's a view of the world that you've been told that you either believe or you don't. Verse 11, after he lists all the sins in 1 Corinthians 6, and such were some of you. What's he doing? He's tying it to your story. And he's saying, you're not that anymore. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus. That is all story. It's all story. When we ask someone to stand up and tell what their testimony is, we're asking for their story. Their account of this. And that story is powerful. And what Jordan Peterson came face to face with is, it's terrifying to imagine that the story is real and that it's objective And that it's personified in Jesus Christ. It's terrifying. Why? Because if the invitation to eternal life was extended to all men, then the wrath of God that is promised is also extended to all men. If Jesus is the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world, John 1, 9, then he is the Son of God who will come in wrath and bring judgment upon all of the unrighteous. You can't believe part of that story and be saved. And if the whole thing is true, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. 
And what I've always admired about Jordan Peterson is his honesty. And I think at this point, he is being more honest with himself than many Christians are in the day to day. And it's in honesty when he says, I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Because even an unbeliever headed for eternal suffering under the wrath of God can look at this and understand if you believe that the person of Jesus Christ is the word come into the objective world, then that means your objective future is going to be laid in the hands of this story, the man of this story. It's terrifying because if it's not just a story, if it's actually the objective reality that we all live in, then it's going to have real consequences. It's going to have a real impact on your objective reality in the future. And it's not just fuzzy things we tell ourselves to come up with moral ideas. No, it's real and it's scary. And if you fully believed it, that would mean change. And that's where the Christian has to nod their head, right? Because the Bible says that when someone believes, have you ever wondered, by the way, why sometimes believing is described differently from text to text? Sometimes it's if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Sometimes it's if you believe that he rose from the grave, right? What's it saying? If you believe in the word, the story, become flesh and played out exactly as accounted. If you believe the story, if you believe the message, if you believe the gospel, you'll be saved. And the Bible says when that happens, the spirit of God comes into a person's life. And from that point on, it's not that they should change. It's that they will change. It's not change that they aspire to. It's change that by necessity takes place. It is what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6. You were sanctified by God's Spirit. The change supernaturally was enacted upon you. This is why Paul can say those who continue practicing unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. How can he know that? He can't point a radar at someone and tell whether or not they've truly believed. He can say it because the person who has truly believed has been supernaturally changed. And that change necessitates repentance and apart from repentance, apart from at least the basic acknowledgement of sin and wrongdoing and the humility that comes with asking for forgiveness, effort behind an acknowledgement of evil in a person's life, apart from that, you are not a Christian. You are, as described in other texts, a son or a daughter of disobedience. And you will inherit what the children of disobedience inherit as opposed to what the children of God inherit, which is his kingdom. It's all about your inheritance. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born, when you become a child of God, born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, 
nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. That's the spiritual. That's the narrative. That's the story. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. I'm telling you, this book that we call a Bible, which is a collection of testimony by men inspired of God, this is everything. This is everything. This tells you how you should live. This tells you where you are hopeless and where there is hope. This tells you where there is life and where there is death. And if you do not surrender to the word of God fully and 100%, you stand face to face with that terrifying reality. Only a fool would stop where Jordan Peterson has paused. To say, I believe it, but I'm scared of what would happen if I fully believed. If you believe it, you're acknowledging the terrifying reality of rejecting it. Are you going to bear the weight of your sin? Are you going to take that before the Lord? You're going to meet Him in judgment? You're going to own up for all the evil that you've performed? What did all of those passages that I kind of just machine gun read at the beginning of the service, uh, dealing with sin, what did they say? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can be sure of this. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're going to stand before God unrighteous? It's terrifying. This is why the story of Jesus Christ is so important and should be ever on the lips of His people. If you won't stand on the story of Jesus Christ, on the story of creation that gives God the authority to declare right and wrong, if you won't stand on the principles of this word, you don't have anything to stand on. And what you'll have to do, you will have to tell yourself a different story. And that's what the enemy does. That's what Satan does. That's what he began in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say this? He knows that when you do this, something else will happen. That's what Satan does. He tells a different story. A corrupted version of the right one. Of the honest one. I believe in the story of this book with more certainty then I believe in my own wife's love for me. And there ain't anything else on this world, there ain't anything else in the world that I would bank on more than that. And I believe this a million times with more confidence. But I had to settle that in my heart.
I didn't have that at 17, 18, 19. I didn't have it at 21 or 22. I had to settle that. And you have to settle it too. Because the story matters. Jesus is the word personified. He is God's story in climactic action. He is the word in objective reality to touch and behold. And what you do with the person of Jesus Christ will have eternal objective consequence. Next week we will set ourselves to answering the question, so what does happen when a person fully believes? What was Jesus doing? Why did he come in the flesh? And we'll look towards Easter Sunday as we do it. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that your spirit will do a work of conviction in the heart and the lives of anyone here this morning who has not believed in your son Jesus Christ, who has not surrendered themselves to the authority of your word, who's not clinging to you for hope and eternal life. Father, I pray that you'll give us clarity about what we believe perhaps even a sense of boldness that these things will be ever present on our lips. Father, for anyone here who needs to be saved, give them the courage to come and speak with me after the service. Give them the courage to face down the terrifying reality described to us in your word and to do what's required. Exchange hearts of stone for hearts that are sensitive to spiritual reality. I thank you for the resources that you've given us. I thank you for all of them, but I thank you for the financial resources you've given us. I thank you for the way you've blessed the families in this church. I pray, Father, that you'll put it in their hearts to bless others. Help us to do well as we go out today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.